Welcome to Just Go Grind, a show that focuses on helping you launch and grow a business and navigate the ups and downs of entrepreneurship. I'm your host, Justin Gordon, and in today's episode, we have Brian Clayton, the CEO and co-founder of GreenPal, an online marketplace that connects homeowners with local lawn care professionals. They've been called the Uber for Lawn Care by Entrepreneur Magazine. They have over 100,000 users, completing thousands of transactions per day. Before starting GreenPal, Brian founded Peachtree Inc., one of the largest landscaping companies in the state of Tennessee, growing to over $10 million a year in annual revenue before it was acquired in 2013. The show notes for this episode can be found at justgogrind.com slash podcast. And you can support the show by leaving a rating and review over an Apple podcast. Without further ado, here is Brian Clayton, CEO and co-founder of GreenPath. Brian, welcome to the show. Hey, thanks for having me on. Great to be here. Yeah, I appreciate you making the time and always happy to talk about entrepreneurship and people's businesses. And I'm fascinated by the many different kinds there are. And for you... For people who aren't familiar with GreenPal, tell people what you're doing with this company now. Yeah, so GreenPal in one sentence is the Uber for lawn mowing. So let's say you're a homeowner, you've got a yard, you need to get it cut. Rather than calling around on Facebook or Yelp or Craigslist, you can just hire somebody to come mow your grass right from your smartphone. They come out, mow your lawn for you. You'll get a picture of the completed, finished, cut grass, and then you just pay them right through the app. If everything goes well, you can just book them for the rest of the season. And uh, we've been at it seven years, uh, started in summer of 2013, so coming up on eight years, we're an eight-year overnight success. Uh, <laughs> we've got around 300,000 people that use the platform to get their grass cut. Uh, we're currently doing $20 million a year in revenue, doubling every year. But uh, it didn't start off that way. It was a, it was a really slow start. It was, a, it was hard to get this company going, but I'm glad we stuck with it. Yeah, and take me through those early days of GreenPal. How did you decide to start the company? Yeah, so 20 years of entrepreneurship in about 60 seconds. I actually started a lawn mowing business in high school as a way to make extra cash. Actually, my dad forced me to go mow the neighbor's yard one day. <laughs> he just made me get off my butt and stop playing Super Mario Kart uh, and said, you're going to go mow the neighbor's grass. I lined it up for you. And it just stuck with me. I just liked uh, liked the, uh, the, the ability to make as much money as I wanted to and work as much as I wanted to. Like business ownership and entrepreneurship was just something that I just, just loved doing. And, and so I stuck with that lawn mowing business all through high school and all through college. And by the time I graduated college, I had a, a, a fledgling little uh, business under my feet that I was able to double down on and, and stick with. And over a 15-year period of time, I built that into one of the largest landscaping companies in the state of Tennessee, over 150 people and got it over $10 million in revenue. And in 2013, uh, that company was acquired by one of the largest landscaping organizations in the United States. And so building that company from scratch, just me and a push mower to <laughs> over 100 people and you know, no money, no revenue to $10 million in revenue, I, I learned a lot just about how to how business works, how to how to get a business started, how to grow a business, and then particularly how the landscaping industry worked and how inefficient it was. And so when I sold the business, I retired. I, I, I didn't have to work anymore, and I took some time off, and I just got bored. I, I really uh, learned a lot about myself in that time that I just loved being in the game. I loved being a part of something bigger than myself. I loved uh, winning. I loved building something that people, uh, customers got value from, that, that, that employees and stakeholders got value from. And, and so I decided, okay, it's time to, time to do the next thing. And the idea for GreenPal was a very obvious one because I was kind of solving my own problem. I saw how inefficient 
it was to for a homeowner to hire a, a lawn mowing service. And I saw also how difficult it was for somebody who makes a living cutting grass to, to do things like billing, bookkeeping, invoicing, routing, all of these things. So I recruited two co-founders and we went to work on GreenPal. And Luckily, we didn't know how hard it was going to be because if we did, we never would have gotten started. So it was kind of like that naivete is what, what got us in the game. But uh, we, we just got, went, put our heads down, started working on, on building the, the first version of the product. The only problem was none of us knew how to code. None of us knew how to build software. None yeah. of us knew the first thing about any of that. And so we paid a uh, development shop, like a dev agency in Nashville, $150,000 to build the first version of GreenPal. And this was like money on credit cards, liquidating 401ks. Like this was not like we didn't have 150 grand sitting around. Yeah. And cause I didn't want to like, you know, just, just spend all of my proceeds from my first business and on the second business. So I was very frugal with how we started the second company. It kind of had to stand on its own. And, uh, we built the, we, we paid for the first version to be built and it was a total flop, total failure. It, it was hard to use. It was clunky. It didn't have the feature set that we needed. It didn't really fulfill the vision or the dream of push a button and get the grass cut. Uh, but, uh, we learned enough with that first version, uh, enough to know that we were solving a problem that people would pay for and that people wanted. Uh, we, we uh, passed out flyers, door hangers to get people to use the first version that we paid uh, uh, for a dev shop to build. And we got a few hundred people to try it. And we were able to learn that uh, that we were solving a problem that they would they, 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 that they would be willing to pay for. And that were, they were actually disappointed when it didn't work. <laughs> and that was a big key thing for us. They were like, you know, I really, this, was, this would have been awesome if it would have worked, but it didn't. You know, the guy didn't show up or I didn't get any bids or or I hired a person and they did a crappy job or whatever. Like they were at least pissed off and upset and disappointed that it didn't fulfill on the promise. And that was enough validation for us to realize that, okay, let's stick with it. Let's keep going. And long story short, we, pay, we, we taught ourselves how to build software, taught ourselves how to, how to design and distribute software, and just, just slogged it out. We just went to work on ourselves. We went to work on the product and on the company and really didn't get any true momentum until probably year three or four. But, uh, but I'm glad we stuck with it because here we are now. We've got a good, good company, good, good profitable business uh, that that uh, is is default alive no matter what happens, and uh, and, and and luckily we've bootstrapped our whole way through, and and so now we we were kind of in charge of our own destiny. Yeah, I have a lot of questions from that. One being the co-founders. How did you sign your co-founders for the business? Yeah, that's a good question. Um, I think a lot of a lot of times entrepreneurs particularly ones that are starting a tech startup, rush to go recruit co-founders. And I think most of the time, I think that's a mistake. I think that you can start most any business just yourself and you don't really need to recruit co-founders. I think a lot of times uh, people recruit co-founders just as like a coping mechanism almost. <laughs> like yeah. I, need, I need another crazy person in the trenches with me so I don't feel as crazy. Um, and, and, and so that can, that actually in a weird way can help. Um, but a lot of times you really don't need co-founders. Um, with, with starting GreenPal, I did because I didn't really know what the hell I was doing. Um, I, was, I didn't really understand the dynamics of how hard it was going to be to build a software product. So I knew that I was going to need some help. 
And, and so for me, I just, I just recruited two people that I knew for a long time that I trusted and that had a particular personality trait. They wanted something more out of life and they wanted to make something of themselves. And I knew that so long as that they had that appetite for some degree of greatness, like some degree of just wanting to be more than they were and wanting to achieve something great. I knew if they had that, that we could get through all of the, the, the hard times. And that is kind of like the only thing that's gotten us to now year seven or year eight is that we just, we never gave up. Like we, we knew that, you know, we were going to be working on our best idea. We knew that we were going to be working on this company. So it wasn't like, like quitting or going backwards was never an option. And so we just kept going forward. And so optimizing for that particular personality trait is what got us through all, all of the, the hard parts. Um, you know, but I don't, I mean, I kind of got lucky, I guess is what I'm saying. Like, I don't recommend that as I can't like synthesize that into like a, like, Hey, here's how you get co-founders. I can't just like, like, like say that's what you should do. Um, but that said, uh, most of the time you can do these things yourself and, and, and hire out the stuff that you need help with. Uh, I recommend that first before you just go rush to, to go get some co-founders. If you do the dynamic that usually works is, is what Paul Graham says is a hacker and a hustler. Uh, so somebody that knows, like if you're starting a software product, somebody that knows the tech side of it, that can build damn near anything. And then somebody who's just really good at sales, somebody who's really good at driving the ball down the field. Usually that dynamic works, but it's hard to find people with those skill sets to come together on, on, on working on a project. Yeah. And there's a few things with that. It reminds me of Ruben Harris and Arthur Meester and Timor Meester, who Ruben was that sales guy for Career Karma. And then the the brothers, Timor and Arthur, they were the the tech talent behind their their startup. And they actually just recently raised a, a Series A and have been crushing it. And that's one way to go in terms of your co-founders. You have, like you said, the, the sale, more so sales guy than the, the tech talent. But I've also seen where you have a solo founder who has experience or who just understands what they need to do for the business. And then just hire out for the ro- other roles that they need. And there is no right answer for that. But I think it's a, a matter of understanding self-awareness uh, with you as a founder. Right. And then also, you know, what your kind of circle of influence has available to you. Because if you're, if you happen to know tons of engineers, well, okay, well, you might as well just have one of your engineer friends team up with you. But if you don't, but then you have to find a way to get around that. And there's no right answer for it. But I think it's fascinating to see how people end up working together because it's going to be a very long time you're with that person. Oh, man, well. such a really good point. <laughs> I mean, you, when you do, if you do decide to, to go the co-founder route, and, and, and you're exactly right, there's no there's no one way to success. Like it's, it's not, it's not, or it's, and like you can, you can do it yourself and you could also maybe uh, get a partner, but you need to really look at this like a marriage. You really need to treat it as, as an, as an important decision as who you marry, because you're going to be spending more time with this person than you are your spouse. Uh, And, 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 and the sad thing is most, if you're successful, odds are, it's going to last longer than your marriage will. And I mean, as crazy as that sounds like, and then the other thing too, is like, it's, it's easier to get a divorce and unwind a marriage than it is a, a, a business partnership that's off and running. So treat it as important as who you decide to marry. One thing you mentioned as well is with building product itself, obviously some struggles along the way, especially being non-technical, but you said you taught yourself to, to essentially build software. And what were some of those things you did to understand that I had at least some capabilities on your team to then build out the software you needed? Yeah. So there's this, 
there's this myth of work-life balance, particularly when you're getting started on building a company from scratch, um, that, that I think is a little dangerous because in the early days when you're, when you're starting any company, and this is, this is even if you know how to code and know how to build software, there is so much you have to learn. Um, so there's like 50, 60 hours a week. You're working in the business and working on the business, but then there's like another 40 or 50 hours a week. You're just learning. You're, you're watching every YouTube video you can get your hands on. You're taking every online code code school class you can. You're reading every blog you can read on SEO. You're 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 watching like every webinar you can on product design. And so there's all of these skills you have to learn. Um, and, and, and you might think, well, yeah, no, I already know a lot of that stuff. Well, then there's a bunch of other stuff that you don't know. Like you don't know <laughs> conversion rate optimization. You don't know data analytics. You don't know how to, how to craft a good experiment. Like there's all of this stuff that you have to learn. And so in the early days, like the, particularly the first three, four, five years of starting a, a tech startup, like there's a lot of time that you need to invest in yourself to level up, to get the skills, to execute. And, it's, and you might think, well, no, I'll just hire somebody to do that. Well, even so, you still need to be like 80-20 good yeah. at, at, at everything. Like you need to be a generalist. You need to know just enough of the basics of everything before you can even think about delegating it. And that's what got me in trouble the, uh, when we when we started GreenPal. We didn't have the first idea on how to do any of this stuff. And so we tried to delegate everything. And then that was a disaster. We pissed away $150,000 and, and two years. Um, and so I, I, you really kind of have to invest in yourself, you know, put in the hours, put in the time to learn this stuff at a basic level. So then you can even have a chance of delegating it. Yeah. I think that's an important thing you mentioned there. And especially as, especially as a CEO, uh, when you're leading the company, it is a matter of understanding enough to be dangerous really. Mm -hmm. Uh, so you know, the different areas that you need to outsource, you know, the different areas that, okay, you can actually lead the strategic vision because you know what you need to hire for. It's so difficult if you don't know that. And I think people who have started multiple businesses like you have, have at least that experience of knowing their, their shortfalls, you know, in some, in some ways. And, uh, it's new when you have a, a tech business that you haven't started a tech company before, but then I'm sure if you, if starting our tech company again, you understand that for next time. So absolutely, these yeah. lessons for people moving forward is, is super beneficial. I think. Great point. And you see a lot of like, uh, comp- co- you know, teams, uh, entrepreneurs that are just crushing it. And you look at like what they did in two or three or five years and like, damn, man, I mean, how are they able to do all of that? And what you don't really realize is a lot of times that founder or that founding team is on their second or third try. Yeah. They've crashed and burned two other companies. And you're not looking at three years. You're looking at 10. You're looking at like a 10 or 15 year arc. And like the last three on that last project is, is where they're really crushing it because they brought all of the scar tissue and all of the experience to to like day one of that business. And so, and, and so like, there's no shortcut for any of this stuff. You, you, you have to get in there and just start working to learn how to do this stuff and how to execute. And to your point, like the, the, the job of the CEO, the job of the entrepreneur is almost like a, like a capital allocator. Like they have to understand, okay, I've got this much money and this is how I'm going to allocate it. And you, you don't really know how to make those bets unless you've done some of this stuff at, at some level. Otherwise, you're just kind of like staring into a black hole. You don't really know. <laughs> and so, yeah, get in there, get your hands dirty, write code, design software, try to do some sort of uh, marketing and distribution to some degree so then you know how to delegate this stuff and build out the team around you.
Yeah. And, and to that point, one thing I like to mention is that we're all investors, whether we actually invest capital as, as a venture capitalist or an angel investor, or anything like that, we're all investors. We're investing our time every single day in different right. things and how we choose that. That's going to dictate what our companies ultimately become. And one thing I want to go back to, you know, you mentioned being a hundreds of thousands of users today, but what has fueled the growth of this business the last, you know, seven or eight years? Yeah. So I think, I think that, uh, every startup, every tech startup, it's like half of what you're doing is innovating on whatever the product, like the product problems you're solving is like, what, how are you innovating on solving a problem that people pay for? That's half of it. But then the other half is you need to be innovating on distribution and growth. Because if you don't have some sort of strategy around how you're going to distribute and market the product, then it doesn't matter how good the product is. And, and I see this a lot. I do, I do some free coaching and mentoring for, for startups in Nashville just as a hobby. And what I see a lot of times is, is when entrepreneurs are first getting going, you know, they've got their little, uh, their little uh, their canvas where you lay out all of your you know, things that you're doing, your value proposition, and, yep. then, and then your go-to-market strategy. And, and in the go-to-market strategy is just uh, PPC, SEM, SEO, like, like all of these little acronyms. <laughs> and it's like, no, that's not a distribution strategy. Like, you know, like you need to really be drilling down to understand, okay, if it is SEO, how the hell are you going to compete in SEO? If it yeah. is PPC, like what are your structural competitive advantages on how you're going to leverage your data and, and, and get your, your, get your cost per acquisition down to where you could even compete in PPC or, or Facebook ads or whatever. Like literally like it has to be some sort of innovation to compete in these channels because they're so saturated or it might be some new innovative way to distribute that nobody's you know tried or thought of. Um, and so for us, we learned early on in those early days of just sitting down face to face with users uh, in every coffee shop in, in Nashville, Tennessee, that we would ask them, how do you normally find a lawn mowing service? How do you normally like solve this problem? And a lot of people would say, well, I'd ask friends and family and I'd get some phone numbers. I'd leave some voicemails. Nobody would call me back. And then, then, it, then like out of sheer frustration, I, I just went to Google and typed lawn mowing service Nashville or lawn mowing service near me. And then I would just try people that I found there. And so we keyed in really early that that search, particularly organic search, could be a channel that we could could try to compete in. And we began and then so we started digging into that and we learned really early, wow, this is hard. <laughs> this is really difficult to to, yeah. to even rank for these keywords. And uh, the only thing we had going for us was focus. We spent the first three years just in Nashville. And so that allowed us to do a few things. One was really dial the product in on, on people in a small geographical area and, and make sure the experience was getting better and better and better before we try to scale it. But also for, from a distribution strat, uh, standpoint, we focused just on our little local area for, for competing in search. And, and that enabled us to figure out how to execute a search. And it enabled us how to, how to, how to really get the traction in, in organic search and learn how to, how to execute an SEO strategy that could be rolled out to other cities. And we kind of, in a way, bet the company on it. Um, and, and if you're going to compete in organic search, it really is a bet the company decision because it's just so it's just so much you have to do. You have to build yeah. your product in such a way, your, your, your platform and website in such a way that it's congruent with, with, so Google understands what the hell it is you're doing. And then, and then you have to invest in great content on a continual basis. And, and then you have to invest in, in PR or, or some sort of link building strategy. There's a lot of stuff that you have to do to even like that are table stakes. 
Um, and then it's a two or three year turnaround before you start realizing the, 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 the ROI. And so yeah. we made that bet early on and, and luckily, you know, it, it, it worked out for us here in year seven, eight, half of our users come through just sheer organic search, no paid channels. And then the other half come through word of mouth. And so I think most every company, every tech startup, particularly bootstrapped ones are, are just going to be good at one channel and are going to be really good at executing in that one channel and, and focusing on that one way to get users because, because you're, you're, you're just, you're not going to be good at three, four or five channels in the first five years. Brian, going back to that point though, of you deciding then to really bet everything on, on organic search, take me through at that time, what were you, were you considering other, other channels or how are you thinking through that decision? Cause if people are going to wonder, you know, how should I look through which ones are going to be best for me? And obviously it's a case by case basis, but I'm curious as to like your mindset around that at the time when you decide, okay, like we have to go all in our organic search. Yeah, yeah, I was I was getting my hands on every single piece of information that I could just trying to learn as much as I could back in those days. And I still do. I still try to learn as much as I can cuz cuz I I'm half the man I need to be uh to to be successful in this game. But <laughs> but back then it was like that's all I did was was just watch YouTube videos and and read blogs. And there was one quote that stuck with me by, by a venture capitalist named Ben Horowitz. And he said, when you're trying to figure out what your channel is going to be, you fire bullets, then cannonballs. And so we we fired bullets on as many different channels as we could. We ran Google AdWords and read every book we could read on, on how to how to execute a Google AdWords strategy. We ran as much as we as we could in Facebook and Pinterest, in in Instagram, uh, in on Twitter and even LinkedIn. And and we we tested and tried to to get some sort of traction in every paid channel that we could and and also like guerrilla marketing tactics as well. And we really just could not get anything to work. And the only thing that showed some sort of ROI and some sort of signs of life was just throwing all of our weight into developing great content and 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 doing the hard work of outreach uh, for that content to, to acquire links to to have some sort of, of organic traffic. And, and we kept asking ourselves, like, you know, okay, we got an extra $3,000 this month. Should we piss it away on Facebook ads or should we just do more of SEO? And uh, another great quote uh, from Reed Hoffman was, a lot of times you just need to double down on what's working and not try to do something that's not working. And it's particularly when you're in your early days and you're in your infancy, just do more of what's working. Like, look at what's working, double down on that. Don't try to go unlock another thing that's not working. And that's what's what we did. With that too, then, because I'm a, I'm a huge proponent of SEO, I've done organic for a while when I had a fitness company. Oh, then, you, so, then you feel my pain. Yeah, yes, very, very <laughs> much so. You know, years of, of building uh, Just Go Fitness, which helped me get training clients and you know, continue to just get traffic today, even though I haven't touched it in like two years. Um, it, it's, it's incredible. And I'm curious then for you, how do you look at what type of content to create? And then you mentioned kind of outreach for distribution and stuff as well. I think people find it valuable to learn a little bit more about the kind of organic SEO route. And I would love to hear what your opinions are around that. Yeah. So, so there's, there's a lot of ways to look at content. Uh, sometimes you're writing content that is for people that would link to it. You know, it's not necessarily going to drive sales. It, you know, it, like the 10 best lawn care services in Wichita, Kansas, is a piece of content that we write. 
That is not going to acquire any links. Nobody's going to link to that. But the best handbook on how to start a lawn care service from scratch with no money, that's going to get links. It's going to get links from entrepreneur.com. It's going to get links from Inc. Magazine. It's going to get links from Forbes. It's going to get links from all of these different people, you know, given that you do the outreach. Yeah. Um, and so, and so sometimes you're writing content to acquire links. Sometimes you're writing content just to acquire the kind of traffic that you want, that you need to get to for sales. And then, uh, and then sometimes, you know, you're, you're writing content just because it's good content to have, you know, like we've got, we've got a piece of content, uh, on the eight ways to, to get moles out of your yard with no, with no pesticides. <laughs> and that thing, that, that piece of content brings like 20,000 people a month. Yeah. It doesn't acquire a lot of links and none of those turn into sales, like less than 0.001%, but it's just good, good content that our domain and our property needs to have. So the point is, is you're, you're writing a lot of content and, and you're not just writing content for content's sake. Like there's a reason behind why you're writing it. And, and then there's a strategy uh, uh, as to why you're creating it and why you're investing in it. And it, and it kind of just touches on like all of the different facets and aspects of executing a robust SEO strategy that quite frankly takes years to figure out and years to get momentum behind and so that's kind of like why I always push back when somebody just puts those three little letters in their distribution strategy, SEO. Oh, okay, done. <laughs> uh, hold on. Let's talk about Wait that. Wait a minute. Into it. Like, <laughs> where, where, where's all the time and money going to come from to, to make it happen? Yeah. And there, there's so much more that goes into that. Do you have then like minimums you're trying to reach every, every month in terms of content, a mix of, you know, we want to have longer form pieces, shorter form pieces. I like to dig in the details just because I think it's really valuable. We try to get a cadence. Uh, we try to develop a, a cadence around the different buckets, right? And so, for instance, like uh, on a local level, we have to create content that serves a, a searcher's need when they are looking for the flat out best rated lawn mowing services in uh, Scottsdale, Arizona. We have to develop that content and there's no like there's no uh, algorithm or automatic programmatic way we can do it. Like that's how the that's how it used to be done. Like Yelp yeah. and Thumbtack and a lot of these guys, you should just scrape all this stuff and then just serve up something programmatically. That doesn't work anymore. And so the, this stuff has to be handmade. It's got to be hand curated. And, and we invest the time to do that. So we try to execute a certain number of those every week, usually five or ten. And then we uh, we try to we try to write every week at least one good post that just helps homeowners with some kind of of uh, of problem that they have in their yard. It could be how to get rid of brown patch and St. Augustine grass, or it could be how how to sharpen your lawn mowing blades if you don't own an angle grinder, stuff like that. You know, and yeah. that's that stuff every now and then acquires links. Um, so it's it's good to invest in that, and it's, and and also what that does is that tells Google, hey, this is a good property. People get value. People come to this property's content and st stay on it for five minutes. Yeah. And so those signals go uh, feed back into Google in terms of like, okay, GreenPal is a great brand for for things related to yard maintenance. And so that and so a lot of stuff you can't really measure. You just it's kind of like dieting. You do it and you just hope <laughs> that it works. And so so there, there you know there, there's that piece of it. And then and then there's like PR led uh, uh, content that we write where. We really try to invest in a piece of content that's going to take us two months to write, but we know we can pitch it to PR uh, and we know we can pitch it to other bloggers and acquire links out of it. And, uh, and that's also, uh, you know, the long game because, you know, you could, you could, 
execute three or four of those in a year and acquire 50 or 100 links and it really not do anything for the business that day but you hope and you know that over a three or four year arc that it that it does pay off yeah definitely the long-term investment on that and and a couple more on on, on content do you keep it all in house do you kind of do freelance uh writers i've seen people do both i'm just curious what you do Everything is in-house. Uh, yeah. We have found that when we try to outsource this stuff, you know, we don't get the expertise. Yeah. We don't like, we have the flat out best series of books on how to start a lawn mowing business from scratch. I wrote those and um, because I've lived it, I've done yeah. it. Uh, I, I, I built a business from scratch in this industry. I, I'm, I'm not like the smartest dude, but when it comes to starting a lawn mowing business, I know how to do that. And so yeah. I, I wrote that it's very authentic and you know, it ranks number one for those, for those types of key phrases. And, and you know, all of our vendor side, you know, people that make a living cutting grass, a lot of them come through just discovering green pal through that series of books. And so Keeping it in-house, you know, it, it makes it harder, it makes it tougher, uh, but I think it, it can preserve the authenticity, whereas if you just try to outsource this stuff who hasn't really, really doesn't like gardening, who doesn't, who's never, who doesn't have an interest in, in perennials, who doesn't have an interest in harvesting rainwater to water your plants rather than, you know, a lawn sprinkler. It's just really hard for that to be helpful to readers. And, you know, 10 years ago, it didn't matter, but now it does. It matters because Google ranks this stuff based on the value that people are getting from it. The time people are spending reading it, um, how often somebody comes to your content and sticks there and doesn't go back to the search engine results page and continues to search, you know, they call that pogo sticking. And so, Google's gotten like almost like, like at a humanistic level, <laughs> good at understanding what's great and what sucks. And so you just have to make stuff that's great. Yeah, it does. It does take a lot more now to stand out or it's either, you know, being that much better or being that much different uh, from someone to, to rank. And that's really what helps. And, and taking a step back here, I mean, what is the, the, the business model in general for, for GreenPal? Yeah, so GreenPal is a true marketplace. So we connect buyers and sellers, and we take a small transactional fee for all the transactions that occur on the platform. And then we also have a subscription uh, feature for uh, lawn care services to subscribe to if they want to that gives them access to uh, premium tools like routing and stuff like that. So we have two ways we make money. Uh, the primary way is through transactions. Like we really focus on how much overlap we're creating between supply and demand and how much value we're adding to people who just need their grass mode. And then also how much we're growing the businesses of lawn care services that use our platform. If I'm honest, that's really why we do what we do is to help small business owners grow their business. We offer a nice convenience to homeowners, you know, like they don't have to call around. A lot yeah. of times their, their lawn mowing service that they hired in analog has let them down. And so we offer a nice convenience to them. But really where we change lives and really why I get out of bed in the morning is to materially enhance the lives of the lawn care service providers that use our platform. And we have just hundreds and hundreds of stories of, of, of people saying, you know, my house was in foreclosure or, or uh, I had lost my job and I didn't have any way to make rent. And I just, I, I went out and bought a lawnmower and started cutting grass on green pile. Now I have 120 customers I'm mowing every week and I'm making a hundred grand a year. Like, thank you so much. Like that, that's why we do what we do. And that, that makes it a lot of fun. 
Yeah, I mean that's that's incredible to have to offer that to people and give them another way to make an income. And there's so many right. things with, with with side hustles and and additional income that can really make a a, more, a massive difference in someone's life. And exactly. And and for that too, that with this business model, then understanding it's from transactions. I mean, do people end up like how does that work in terms of the the customers working with the same people over and over again? Do you take a cut from every one of those? Is it like they could just you know as personal training for instance, some people would just oh if they go through Thumbtack and then they just end up working one on one with that person. And obviously Thumbtack doesn't benefit from that. Like, how did you think about that side of things with, with this? Yeah. Yeah. So a lot of the value is in, in, in the pricing discovery and introduction between homeowner and service provider. But then our, our job is to power that relationship for as long as it is, as, as it lasts. So on a weekly basis or biweekly basis, we take a, a cut of that transaction on an ongoing basis. And so the, the, the fancy word for uh, people going offline is called platform disintermediation. And we saw that a lot in the early days because quite frankly, our product sucked. We didn't offer <laughs> enough value to vendors uh, to stick with it. But as we have grown, like we've looked at platform disintermediation, like it's not happening to you. It's happening for you as a means to like guide you to understand, okay, this is where you have to add more value because if people are, if, if homeowners are looking to sidestep the platform and service providers are looking to sidestep the platform, then you're just not offering enough value on an ongoing basis to keep them in. And so over time, we've really looked at ways to to create lock-in and and create stickiness. And so for the service provider, it's like every customer they get on the platform, it it makes the moat deeper and deeper and the lock-in deeper and deeper. And so it's like they have 120 people that, that they're mowing all through their GreenPal account. Yeah. Like for them to unwind that is just a tremendous undertaking. They have to go to every single one of those people and say, hey, I know you like this really neat, convenient way, this <laughs> invisible way to get this done. But now I want you to like go back to like cutting me a check or like Venmoing me every month or some shit. And it's yeah. like, they don't like, no, like homeowners don't want to hear that. And then on the, on the flip side, homeowners are like, okay, I can save a couple of bucks, a transaction. If I go back to like paying this guy cash and then I don't even know if he's going to show up when he's supposed to, like in a weird way, our platform is kind of like a boss in a pocket for service providers to just stay on track, keep, you know, keep up with their schedule to, to keep a, delivering a consistent, reliable experience to their clientele. Cause I mean, it's a hard business. And, and when you have that accountability layer, it makes sure that everything runs smoothly. Yeah, absolutely. And one of the things that we haven't really dove too deep into yet is, is expansion in terms of markets. So I understand that obviously the content side of it and SEO has been a big part of it, but you said the first three years were in Nashville. How did you look at then expanding to other markets? What were you looking for, you know, operationally? What did that take? I'm curious about that. Yeah, we, you know, we really, 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 really thought that we would spend like six months in Nashville and then we would just blow it out nationwide. <laughs> and then we were just confronted with the with the humbling reality that the push the push a button get the grass cut button doesn't work like we had to fix that <laughs> we just and like what I, what I mean is like all the when you hire somebody to come mow your grass there's literally like a thousand things that can go wrong between hiring them and them coming out to mow like it rained their equipment broke their equipment got stolen they got stuck in traffic uh they got overloaded that week yeah they uh their helper didn't show up uh they were bored they were they were tired that morning and just flat out didn't want to come mow your grass. Like there's a million things that can go wrong. And so we set out to solve as many of those as we could with software. And it just took a very long time to, to, to get that dialed in, in in one city. 
once we had some reliability we, we and some consistency with the product, we began to understand, okay, now it's time to start rolling this out. And we just rolled out to one city, and it was Tampa, Florida. And uh, the only reason we chose Tampa, Florida was because I had a buddy that lived in Nashville that had just moved from Tampa, Florida. And so we <laughs> all flew down there to, like, size up the market and figure out, okay, this is, these are the neighborhoods we need to, like, mark, market in. And, and this is, like, this is how this – is, this, these are the size yards in this market. And, like, this dude's driving me around, a good friend of mine. And he's driving me around. He's showing me all these neighborhoods. And I'm like, oh, God, this place is huge. Like, how are we going to, like, tackle this? And he's showing me all these neighborhoods. And then, like, by hour six or seven, I realize he's just driving me to neighborhoods of former girlfriends that he had in Tampa. <laughs> like, like, I'm like, what the hell am I doing? Okay. What the hell am I doing? You know, it is oh, like, wow. you know, like, this has been a uh, – I don't even know. Like, I'm trying to, like, eat this – I'm trying to, like, eat this elephant – and it was just, just so it was just daunting, right? And yeah. so uh, we stuck with it, though. I stayed down there for like a month and and interviewed hundreds and hundreds of service providers to figure out which ones we wanted on the platform. And then we we really got a handle on uh, this just the zip codes we wanted to target, and because we knew we had to get that market right in order for this thing to work. And and so over a period of six months, we finally got that market to to kick off. We got the critical mass. Uh, of suppliers and homeowners to use it. And throughout that process, we were able to hone in on some sort of repeatable playbook uh, to to go take out to every city. And so then our third market, the following year was Atlanta. And then, uh, and then after those three markets, we were able to up the cadence and like every two months we would launch one. And then we got to a point where we were launching one every week. And now we're in every major city in the United States. That's incredible. <laughs> With that as well, then getting service providers on the platform, how are you evaluating them? What are you looking for? What's that process involved? In the in the early days, it was hand to hand combat. It was face to face, coffee shop, Zoom, whatever, to figure out okay who's good, who's not, and who do we really want to uh, give give access to. And then now we've been able to do that through a self serviced uh, system where you you undergo a bank check, you undergo uh, a series of 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 checks to make sure that your business is up to, uh, on the, on the up and up. And then you, uh, you have to upload equipment pictures. Um, you have to uh, provide, uh, references from existing clients all before we'll let you onto the platform. And then after that, you programmatically go through like a vetting process. Like if you get hired and you don't show up on that day and do a great job mowing the grass for who hired you, who took a chance on you, you're out, you're done. Yeah. And, and so like, there's this vetting process, like through, uh, transactions, uh, that surfaces the good, like well-performing, reliable service providers and, and side sidelines, the ones that just aren't reliable because that's the main, uh, part of the value proposition that, that we, that we serve to homeowners is reliability and speed. When we first got started, we thought it was like we were trying to deliver the cheapest way to get your grass cut. And price does matter. But what we came to realize is our value proposition really is get the damn guy to show up and get him to do a good job. And so as time goes on, we measure service providers for how often they show up on the day they're supposed to. And also, how often do they get booked for a second lawn mowing? And this is how we surface the good ones and and sidelines the not so good ones. 
One of the things that I'm curious about too is with, you know, obviously you mentioned the expansion and how that's gone and progressing to a much shorter time to get into a new city. How do you look at the kind of short-term thinking versus long-term thinking with within GreenPow? Yeah, you know, it's uh, that's really, 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 really easy to, to, to solve when you're bootstrapped because you focus is all you got. And so there's two things. One, when you're bootstrapped and you, and you, you're just, you you got a little bit of money coming in and as a capital allocator, you're trying to figure out where do I put that money? It really crystallizes decision-making. And then the other piece of it too is, is we've always made it extremely easy for homeowners to talk to us. And so in every interface, there's, there's, there's a chat bubble. Um, the, any transactional email, you respond to it, it hits us up. And so for the, you know, to this day, I still do several hours a day of, of, of user support. And, and like that never ending river of feedback delivered, you know, right to your face makes decision-making crystal clear. You always know where you suck. You always know what you need to be building that people want on both sides of the transaction. And so it's like never, you're never at a loss to understand where to take the company. And, and here we are eight years in, I, I still know what the next six things we need to be working on. You know, we, re- we, we basically like have the equivalent of a seed round coming into our company every month. And I know where to put that money because right. I'm always talking to users. And it might be, you know, like Sunday night, you're out to dinner with your girlfriend and it's like, oh, wait, some dude in Denver didn't get his grass cut today. And let me figure out what went wrong here. And it's like you're, you're always confronted with the feedback if you make it easy for your users to talk to you personally as the founder. Yeah, but the, obviously that then means they're going to love the service because they're going to get a top-notch uh, customer service, which goes a long way for the trust that they have in the company. And that's obviously how you keep customers. Yeah, exactly. And, and we try, you know, I don't want to build a company on white glove concierge service because that doesn't scale. Doesn't but, scale yeah. but I do want to make it easy for homeowners to talk to me so I can like figure out like the old Toyota lean manufacturing methodology, like asking why five times. Yeah. Why didn't this guy get his grass cut? Well, because the vendor didn't show up. Well, why didn't the vendor show up? Well, because uh, he got overbooked that day. Well, why did he get overbooked that day? Well, because this person hired them last minute. We had no line of sight of visibility to understand that he was full. Okay, well, we need to build some sort of like block and tackling to understand to where that shouldn't happen again. And so like that's a very like specific issue as to why the homeowner was pissed off. But you got to ask why five times and figure out where you need to like focus on building uh, stuff to fix these things to prevent them from happening again. One thing I'm curious about too is you you mentioned obviously feeling this from from revenue from from profits. Was the decision to be self funded something you always knew that you were going to do with this company, or did you ever consider uh, raising money? Yeah, no. So um, here's how it happened. So, so looking back six, seven years, eight years, looking back in the rear view, I, I really believe like the best bet for, for, for entrepreneurs is like revenue is the best form of, of financing that, that, that you can have. And so, so for me, you know, indexing on why we got to where we are is because we're self-funded. Um, but going into this game, you know, you got to think I had a, I had a $10 million business going into it and I was like financially retired. Yeah before I started this business. So I had, I had really no appetite for starting from the bottom again. Uh, but that's ultimately how it turned out. Um, and so, and so for me, like what brought me to tech startup land was the glamour was the, 
the big, like, let's raise a bunch of money and build a billion dollar business. That's what like brought me to it. And then I got into it and I started realizing like, oh, wow, no, that's actually, that's actually a really crappy bet. <laughs> like, like, <laughs> like I would, I would have a bigger, a better shot of moving to LA and being the next like rapper than <laughs> starting a venture backed billion dollar business. Like that, that's literally, that's literally like how the numbers shake out. It's, it's one in a thousand, it's one in 10,000. And so I started looking at that, like, man, that's a really bad bet. Um, and do I really want to spend the next five, 10 years on, on like a get rich or die trying type of, of dynamic. And then I really looked at like the first years, like, okay, so here's how you, this is, I, but still, but still I wanted to raise a, a round of funding and I started looking at, okay, so I got to like meet with all these people and I got to like beg them for a $50,000 check. Like, no, I don't want to do that. I just want to build this product. I don't want to do that. <laughs> like, and then I got to like, I got like a ru- basically run a sales process on all these angel investors. And, and I just started looking at it. I was like, shit, that's going to take two year or a year. And like, we got all this other work to do. I don't have time for that. Like, I just want to build a product people want to use. And so I just, we just didn't do it because me as the founder, I didn't want to do it. Yeah. I, I didn't want to like take my focus off of building a product. I didn't want to like go run the sales process of, of, of hustling up investors and pitching them. Like, and there was almost like an ego piece of it too. It's like, no, I don't, don't want to grovel. I don't want to like, I don't want to meet a hundred people to get one check. I, I just, so it was just like my appetite wasn't for it and I didn't want to do it. So we didn't. And so we just stuck with the product, hustled up uh, uh, our first couple thousand dollars a month in revenue. And they were able to turn that into 10,000 a month in revenue. And it turned that into a hundred thousand a month in revenue. And, and we've never looked back. And, and, and as it turned out, like, in 2013, 14, 15, 16, there was a there was a sea of money pour into like Uber for X startups like us. And so you had Uber for valet parking, Uber for <laughs> home cleaning, Uber for laundry service, and like all of these businesses cratered. And there's been a, a handful of other businesses that were in like similar verticals to us, you know, the Uber for lawn mowing. And uh, a lot of them have gone to zero too. There's there's a couple still fighting it out and they've all raised, you know eight figures in revenue. Um, but you know, it's, it, as it turns out, the, 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 the path we took in, in terms of being self-funded is a lot of the reason why we're still here today. Yeah. And there's two really big takeaways from that one being understanding your own personal situation and what you prefer, because that is a huge part of it for any business and being okay with what, whether it be slower growth or whatever, and more sustainable, which is totally a great place to be in. And then two, understanding like you had started a business before and you had revenue from that business is like, you could actually sell fund it. Uh, obviously some people aren't necessarily able to be, to do that in that position. So it's like understanding those things. Oh, absolutely. And, and it, there's a lot of businesses too, where self-funding is just not an option. Like yeah. let's say you wanted to go start a scooter company, you know, three years ago and you had this vision for creating, you know, bird or, or lime. Right. You, that, that, I mean, that wasn't, that was an obvious, like good idea that just required a ton of capital. And so <laughs> like, there's no way to bootstrap bird. Yeah. And so, and so that said, you know, like there's a lot of businesses where, it just requires capital. But the, the thing is, is if you're going to start that kind of business that is just going to require a bunch of upfront money, you probably need to have some kind of track record under your belt. You probably need to have a couple, like a single 
or something under your belt before you try to go start that business. I, I, I talk to a lot of entrepreneurs. They're like, oh, I just, you know, there, I just, there's, I just can't raise capital, so I can't start. But it's like, well, maybe you should go start a simpler business and spend three or four or five years in that and, and like crush it in that smaller, simpler business, learn, you know, cut your teeth on that. And then you got a track record and then you can raise five or 10 million bucks if that's what you want to do with your life. Yeah. So a lot of this stuff you kind of ease into, you're not just going to start at the starting line, starting bird. <laughs> that reminds me, I recently interviewed uh, Antti and Arena from Unbound and they're doing some really interesting things in, in VR. They have agency as well, but he actually decided to fund his business by starting a number of bars. He literally started six bars because they cash flow really well in a number of months and used that to fuel his business. <laughs> there's so Absolutely, many. Absolutely, yeah, like there's so Absolutely. many ways. That's, that's what I'm talking about. And, <laughs> and, and dude, we, you know, here's what we did. Uh, when we first got started this first six months or a year, none of us knew how to code. Like the first thing about how to code. Yeah. And, and so my, my co-founder, uh, went to a software school in Nashville, but hell, that was a six month ramp. My other co-founder started driving for Uber. And back in those days, you can make 20 or 30 bucks an hour on Uber. Yeah. And he started driving for Uber. And for every hour he would drive on Uber, we could buy an hour of dev time from some dude in Pakistan. Yep. And so we were trading, we were trading Uber hours for dev hours. And that's how we were, a, were able to bridge the gap between not knowing how to do anything to, De developing the skills to do it. Yeah. Hustle, <laughs> grind. That's the hustle, way to man. do it. Hustle. I mean, that's exactly the way to do it. And I want to, a couple more questions I have before we wrap up. One being, uh, what have been kind of the most impactful books for you over the course of your entrepreneurial career? Well, you know, like this is not a technology startup book, but the book, The E-Myth by Michael Gerber, I think is a really good book for anybody getting into business, whether it be technical or, or, or analog it just really codifies how to think about working on your business versus in your business. That's a really good book. Um, then, and then, um, going back to like, uh, tech, like technology oriented books, um, the book called the startup owner's manual by Steve blank is a really good book that was influential in terms of how we think about customer development and how we think about firing bullets and then cannonballs. I mean, I can go on. There's a hundred books, but those are two that, that stand out. Yeah, there, there's so many good ones out there, and I think it depends on where you're at in your business and your your career, which ones hit you. And then I've I've also found that rereading some of the, the classic books, they hit you different at different points in your career. Oh right. I mean, yeah, that's a huge yeah, part of it. I've, I've probably reread Four Hour Work Week a number of times at this point, and every time I reread it, it. it hits me so much differently and depending on the business I'm working on at that current moment or what I'm involved with. And I think there's a lot of value in that as well. Absolutely. That's a great book on outsourcing and automation and delegation. Like people think that's a book on how to work four hours a week and it's not, <laughs> it's a book about how to like duplicate and multiply. And, and, and so, yeah, that's a great book too. Everybody needs to read that. Yeah. Really all about how to increase your per hour output, whatever that may exactly. be. Exactly. Which is table stakes. You're going to have to learn how to do that whether you want to have a side hustle or a billion dollar company, that's an awesome book. Um, and you're, you're right. You reread these things and they mean different things at different stages of the journey. Yeah. And one thing I'm curious about too, is just how do you recharge away from work? Founders have a difficult time with this typically, but what do you do to kind of recharge? You know, in the early days, um, these first five years, I'm working on this business. My two co-founders are as well. You know, we're not taking any money. No paychecks. I mean, yeah, there was like 
a couple, you know, how much money do you need this week? Yeah. A couple hundred bucks to get you by. Uh, and so like, that was really hard. And so there was no balance. Um, but I did wake up one day, like year four and a man, I was just in terrible shape. I was probably 30, 40 pounds overweight. And my co-founder was like, we got to do something. And, and so we both signed up for a marathon and we just started training for this marathon. <laughs> and, 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 and as I'm training for this marathon, there was a lot of like parallels that, that I'm deducing from like running this marathon to like business. I'm like, there's just so much like you can learn from running a marathon, like to, the, just the, the principle of consistency and like sticking with a, with a routine and not doing too much, but not doing too little and sticking with a plan. And then, and then you see those crazy people like at the corner of the stoplight, like running in place. And you're like, what the hell is that person doing? Well, when you train for a marathon, you realize that like when, if you stop at that stoplight, and then wait for it to change and then start again, you realize that it's actually harder to get started again yeah. when you stop than just keep moving. And like that was just a was just a principle that I learned from running that marathon to that, that applied to business. Just it's just momentum and keeping moving. And like that was something that really kind of shook it up for me and shook it up for us was understanding, okay, you got to take care of your body because this business is a marathon. It is going to be a five, 10, 20 year arc. And the only way to win is to not quit and not give up. And so that was one, one thing that was enabled, enabled me to shake it up. But so here I am year eight and it's not, I don't have to work hundred hour weeks anymore. I, I work, you know, 40 hour weeks. And so what enables me to recharge, uh, of course, exercise. I like martial arts. I like to travel. And so I'm in, I'm in much more of like a smoother, uh, like trajectory upward versus like the first, the first five years were just excruciating. Yeah. It's so interesting because I feel like everyone kind of says that. And so it's almost like you have to, especially in the beginning, early days, you're doing whatever you can to survive, uh, in terms of the business. And there's a level of, you're going to have to sacrifice in some capacity. And there is a, a tough balance between taking care of yourself, taking care of the business, but it's obviously important and uh, it needs to be done regardless. But from this as well, then any last lessons, takeaways, anything you'd want to tell other entrepreneurs? Yeah. Um, ah, man, I could take it. I could take it practical or I could take it big <laughs> picture. I'll, I'll go big picture. So I, I just got done reading a book called um, A Million Miles in a Thousand Years. And this book is about this guy who, who rides his bike from one end of the country to the other. But the point of the book is like to live an interesting life, you have to live an interesting story. And, and so, so you have to create this storyline uh, to your life in order to live an interesting life. And I was reading this book. I was like, man, that really makes sense. And, and what clicked for me was like, okay, my business is the storyline to my life. Like I'm the hero, I'm the main character and I'm going through these ups and downs and I'm kind of marauding my way through starting this thing from scratch. And like, there's highs and lows and like this, this business is the storyline to my life. And this business is the thing that gives my life purpose. Like if it weren't for me, uh, what would happen? And the business is the answer to that question. Well, if it weren't for me, then like there's a thousand service providers that are going to use the app today to make a living. And if I don't do what I need to do, they're going to be let down. And and if it weren't for me, and like my employees wouldn't get a paycheck. And if it wasn't for me, my co-founders wouldn't have this thing either. And so it's like, for me, business is the storyline to my life. It's the thing that makes it interesting and it's the thing that lends it purpose. So I think if you can like reframe your business and look at it that way, it can give you like, it can give you the gas in the tank, so to speak, to go five, 10, 20 years on it. 
Brian, where can people go to learn more about what you're doing, connect with you as well? Yeah, so life's too short to cut your own grass. That's for damn sure. <laughs> so you can just download GreenPal on the App Store or Play Store. You'll get hooked up with a great lawn mowing service in less than a minute. Uh, anybody that wants to hit me up, uh, man, I've been hanging out on LinkedIn a lot more lately. They've done a really good job making that platform not suck uh, like it did 10, 15 years ago. And so, yeah, hit me up on LinkedIn. If you have a specific question about something specific that I may be able to help you with, hit me up. I'd be happy to, to help you out. Brian, thank you so much for taking the time to come on the show today, man. My pleasure. Thanks for having me on. Thank you so much for listening to this episode of Just Go Grind. If you want to follow along on the socials for all things Just Go Grind and with me as well, you can find Just Go Grind on Instagram and Twitter at Just Go Grind. You can find me on Twitter at JustinGordon212. Find me on Instagram, JustinGordon8. Thank you so much for listening. Have a great day.